0: Welcome to The Train Rush, your ghost train of 18xx podcasts, brought to you by your hosts, Craig Taylor and Dave Moss. So apologies for the gap in service. The ghost train nomica is somewhat appropriate because it's not only is it Halloween as we record this, it is also at the moment, (laughs) arguably a zombie podcast. We've had a little bit of a long break, a gap in service. And I just want to deal with the, um, the poltergeist in the room and address that. It's entirely on my shoulders. Uh, we had a new child in April, and that was tougher than I expected on the personal time schedule. And sadly, the podcast does come in as a personal time activity. I do want to thank our Patreon backers who have stayed with us during The Gap, and those who who you know have down-leveled during The Gap, etc. We appreciate your support. What we've done, and we've told you this via Patreon, is we've paused the Patreon when we haven't got an episode. And we'll continue to do that if we ever have any more unforeseen gaps, but we're hoping there won't be any. So thank you for your patience, be your normal listener who just you know listens in or someone who helps pay for the editing. Really appreciate it. That said, the gap did give us a little bit of time to reflect on stuff in terms of the shape of the podcast, uh, had a chat with Dave, had a chat with some of our listeners. And there's a key word we want to focus on for this season, and it's accessibility. So the, the number one piece of feedback that came to us was it's fun to listen to you guys sometimes i don't know what you're talking about let's put a pin in that for a second but more importantly you're quite often reviewing titles that i can't buy i mean i can understand that frustration can't
1: you dave yeah absolutely i mean we we know how difficult it is to get get hold of 8x8 copies and yeah some of them are in the very rare uh very unobtainable categories and obviously we're we're fortunate to play them but um i think you know uh, certainly when people hear us talk about them, I'm guessing they want to go out and play it and and, and prove us wrong in some instances.
0: Totally. And to be fair, half the reason we're recording on stuff like that is because we're really pleased to have got hold of it. And it's obviously something that we find academically interesting and want to share that love. That said, there's plenty of fun and depth to be found in things that you can find in your friendly local game store. Or from Scott at All Aboard Games or Jeff Heuer at Golden Spike Games, etc, etc. Just because you weren't named doesn't mean we don't love you. Uh, So we're going to make a point of trying to cover some more stuff that you can buy. So moving swiftly on from the falling on our sword piece, let's do the introduction to our guest Steamhead today. So we're very fortunate to be joined today by someone who has been gracious enough to have me on their podcast. We can only get one of them in the virtual recording booth today. So his co-host will have to come on another time, I'm sure. A big player of 18xx online, A guy who makes a lot of time of it face-to-face. I love hearing his content on 18xx when they can squeeze it into their podcast. The ever affable Jake Kloppenstein of Gaming Moguls. Hello. Jake, rather than me doing you a disservice, why don't you introduce yourself? And why don't you plug your podcast? Because I'm sure that's a thing that I need to invite you to do.
2: Happily. I will happily do that first I'd like to say a big thanks to let you having you guys let me on your podcast. I can't believe you're letting some silly American that doesn't have very good opinions onto a such an esteemed uh, podcast. So my name, is, as Craig said, is Jake. I'm from the Gaming Moguls. We're kind of a quick board game podcast, and we talk pretty much everything from lightweight arrows all the way to 18xx. The only thing we kind of don't cover is co-ops. I've been into 18xx now for about three to four years, so I'm relatively new, especially compared to you blokes. With some of my favorite titles being 18 Mex, 1846, 1889, and 1822 Mexico, because I just love Mexico trains so much. I've been having I've been in gaming for much longer than that, pretty much my whole life. But interested in some games like Gaia Project, Roll for the Galaxy, and Indonesia. Are some of my other favorites. So thanks again for having me on the podcast. Uh, hopefully, we can get my co-host Mark on it as well sometime in the future. He has better opinions than me. You have the you have the lacking one here.
0: I'm not sure that's true Jake, I, I also don't want to have the guy on the podcast who's beat me 2 18xx games in a row so uh, my ego won't take that, jo- joking aside, thanks for joining us, I really appreciate that. The other context that Jake's coming on the show is because the title we are going to cover today after we've gone through the kind of the what have we been playing recently bit is he's played this title a heck of a lot. So he's doing himself a disservice in saying that he doesn't have interesting opinions because I think that for this one, he's going to have some of the most interesting opinions on the planet.
2: I have a high mark to hit then. Okay, here we go.
0: No pressure, Jake. No pressure. (laughs) So let's go through a little bit of housekeeping, I guess. Uh, Dave, what 18xx titles have you been playing recently?
1: Now, that's a really good question, actually. Lots, lots, lots of different things. Lots of the aforementioned mystery game that we'll talk about in a minute. I've also been some of the more eagle-eyed people may have noticed that I've got a prototype design in work. So I've been playtesting that with a couple of local friends. We've been playing a few other things. We had a good go at uh, JCL's, uh, or JC Lawrence, apologies, uh, 1828, which I think is a great game. There's a lot to wrap your head around. But certainly that was interesting. Uh, We revisited 1846 a couple of weeks ago as well. That was good fun.
0: Well, to be fair, Dave, we've had a chance to play plenty of train games at the recently completed Stationed Out Rail Con. Now, I appreciate this dates the episode, folks, so we won't go too deep into it. But the joy of that weekend for um, Dave and myself was to be able to play a variety of titles. I won't say the instance of 1828 we played at the con was our finest. We shouldn't have scheduled it for Saturday morning when we were busy checking people in and... uh, making sure the hotel food and stuff was all right. It's a big title intellectually and maybe practical things getting in your way is not (laughs) an ideal setting for it. But everybody came away from those tables super excited for playing that game again. So I think you know that's mission accomplished there. People go away excited to learn more.
1: Definitely. We spun many plates on that morning, but I think it was a great game and people certainly want to play it again. So um, onus is on us to get those set up and, and have another go at getting those rules right.
0: But hopefully with uh, with some of the practical measures that are boiled out of the show with uh, having a broader audience of people to play games with, we'll be able to arrange more plays of those sort of titles. Yeah, I mean, no more coverage on that than we enjoyed it, I guess, and you'll probably be able to hear stronger coverage elsewhere. Speaking for myself, Dave, I managed to get a game of 1867 in In Your Absence, which I think may be somewhat relevant for the today's show title as it's often compared to it. Well, I'm sure Jake and myself can argue whether that's a relevant comparison, but enjoyed that game. Can't say I played it well. Can't say I played it in anything but an exploratory fashion to try and work out what leaves were available and to see if it was a fair comparison to today's title. But, you know, as like I say, good fun to play something a little bit outside my normal stocks and shares, brutalization wheelhouse so shall we make the most of jake's time given that normally we can ramble dave on what we've played and move on to the topic but i hate to take our guests goodwill beyond what's available
2: you have ample goodwill you do not need to worry about my goodwill here but i'd love to talk about some 18 new england
0: okay there you go so with that introduction dropped in we're talking 18 new england dave do you want to go through the high points the uh, the publisher stuff and all that wonderful information
1: so, so it's a, it's a new game that's coming from from Scott Peterson at All of Board Games. I think it's due to be released early 2020. There were some playtest copies made available by Scott late summer, early spring, and a number of people have been lucky enough to get their hands on it and try it. I think it's it's an incremental cap game. involves minors and majors, uh, and, and obviously there's lots of uh, stuff to do with growing companies up and how you you get funding and capitalization into them as you progress through it. I think you know. We'll talk through the salient points as we get into the episode in a bit more detail. But um, I think it's designed to have some differences to some of the more standard uh, incremental capitalization games. As I say, coming soon from all aboard games.
0: So instead of a private auction like a waterfall auction or a Euro-style auction with uh, some sort of means of putting new things up, we have another Euro mechanism in there instead. We have a snake or serpentine draft. On said draft, you have four actions available to you. You can reserve a company, which means take it out of the suite of available companies and start the game. Just to be clear, it's a little bit 18 island-ish where only 10 are available and five are reserved for later in the game. Come back to that. You can, second action, set a par price of a company you've already reserved. We'll come to the specifics of that, but there's an interesting thing there. Alternatively, you can release reserved companies. Maybe you picked one to try and annoy another player. I mean, I've never done that, but some people aren't very nice. Alternatively, you can pass.
1: Just a slight correction to those. If you do the, the release, I think it's actually called relinquishing the rules. You're actually forced to give what you have that isn't already parred back and, and you pass at the same time and the pass is binding in either instance. It takes you out of the draft at the start of it.
0: So releasing them is relinquishing them back into the pool for
1: other people to pick and stepping out of the the game yourself. Sorry, that was the point I was trying to highlight.
2: Well, to be candid as well, I've never actually seen someone relinquish. I remember when I was first teaching this game to a handful of newer players, I thought it'd be a more interesting lever that the game provides you. But really, functionally, what you're doing in this game is you're doing a quick serpentine graft, and depending on the player count, you're either going to get two or three of the miners. And I've never actually seen someone successfully grab an additional one and hold on to it before giving it back and hurting that, that, that company's par chances. I think it ends up being more of a, a head game than actually some actual used mechanism in the game.
1: Because it's got such a, a destructive end to it, you know, if you're relinquishing, your, you're stepping out of it. You say the ability to draft block people and, and try and play shenanigans in that way, it just doesn't really work out well. It, I think it's there for I've made a complete mess of this turn and I want to just sacrifice everything and start afresh on the next share round.
0: My experience of it has been every time I've experimented with that lever, it's you cut off your nose to spite your face and you end up in a poor position. If you aren't picking something to progress your agenda during that draft, be it a pass spot you want or a company that synergizes with what you've already picked, you're probably failing.
1: And that's why I think kind of going back to a point you were touching earlier and comparing it to other games, I actually think it's more similar to 1846 in the um, the opening private draft at that point, you know you know you're looking for synergies with things you've got as you say you're looking to build a strategy through what you draft at that point
0: i agree that's a similarity weirdly when i'm doing the draft it doesn't put me in quite the same mindset it feels like a very basic draft i mean maybe jake i'm underselling it there no
2: no I, I completely agree it's it's functionally you're choosing your starting hand and it's nothing that's really interactive at that point in time you might Take a company that somebody wanted, if let's say they're going to do, we'll talk about them specifically in just a moment, but if you were to take one that par really well or match really well with someone else's private, you can block that. But functionally, I don't quite think the beginning opening part of the draft is really a strong, at least for experienced players, portion of the game. It's just really a way to figure out everyone's starting position and play the game from that point on. But exactly as Dev said, it's all about synergies and picking two good minor companies that may work synergistically.
0: I mean, I guess if I was comparing this to 1867, where you can start the company's edit anywhere, and bear in mind, this is done in a stock round as opposed to part of setup, and you have an auction for it, it's way more direct than that. So it's just it's quick and it whips around, and I guess that's an advantage for a newer player in that they're not there waiting for procedure after procedure to happen. In principle, this should happen reasonably quickly because of the lack of interference. I think the other thing it kind of, I don't want to say fixes for 1867, but it certainly adjusts from 1867, is... In 1867, we found that people only put things up for auction at a price they knew nobody else could win. So you had all the rules for an auction, but you didn't have all the drama around brinksmanship and all those things in practical terms, because people just went, okay, it's got an auction, but these plum spots are so good, I don't want to risk it. So it had all the baggage of an auction without the good stuff. Whereas with this, it's kind of like, going, well, do you know what, let's not have auctions. Let's just, you, you get it. It's just, it's a position of tables, of seating position. But if you want it, you grab it.
2: Agreed.
1: And and I think the snake draft does make a slightly interesting element choice, particularly on either end of it, because. Where you've got those actions of choices, am I, am I drafting something or am I potentially paring it? Particularly at the front or the back end of it where you have those back-to-back turns, you know, you can take something and par it or you take two things. That's probably a nice precursor and, and into the sort of par price challenge of the game.
0: Let's talk par prices. So just quickly, it's a 1D stock market. You can imagine what that looks like. And it's quite long. And we don't track the minor company's value. We just note their par. Dave, you're keen on that. Why don't you talk about the pars?
1: So basically you've got a a series of fixed values ranging between uh, 50 and I think 90 in yellow phase. uh, 70, but yes. I'm glad one of us has been paying attention. (laughs) Um, And and, and then you go up to 100 in the green phase. uh, And basically you're choosing one of those values paying double to get the president or in effect the company, but it's the equivalent of the president's share. And that is then fixed. Obviously, as a miner, you've only got the, the single entity. There are no other shares to be sold at that. But that price is totally locked for the rest of the game. And so with your starting capital, as I think we were saying earlier on, generally you've got the opportunity to get two. But obviously, can you get the par price you want as well?
0: Well, coming to why the par prices matter, right? Because right now, there's just a value, it's arbitrary, it's how much money you trouser into the company's coffers. It does matter. But I think we'll talk, when it comes to converting, it will become clear why those matter. They are definitely a thing you uh, want to be mindful of in the opening draft, these 1880-style limited pass lots. Going back to a point you said, Dave, about being at the end of the draft, being interesting. I found you either wanted to be first in the draft or last in the draft. Having the power to do two things on the bounce seemed to matter more. So I I often felt in a poor position if I was in second spot in the draft. I get second choice, so I'm not going to get what I consider the most plum company. And then I've got to wait a long time for it to come back to me, and hopefully there's a company left I want. It seemed, yeah, that that seemed unfortunate. Now, do you feel you like you're in a good spot if you're second in the draft, Jake?
2: Yeah, I think you can be. So I think this might be a good moment to actually talk about what the minors kind of exist and the kind of spread of them. Because personally, in my opinion, I think that the minors here are kind of broken down into three different tiers. There's the ones that are really good because they're going to get you a lot of money off the get-go. There's the ones that are good, but usually need some other benefit to be make them make them a little better. These are the ones that are kind of in the middle that are good token spots, which again, we'll touch on a little bit more. And then there's finally the handful three of them that are kind of bad, and they don't make a lot of money compared to the others because in this game, unlike in 1861 and 67, I do believe, you get to buy a 2T right at the very beginning of the snake draft with the capital. So the companies start moving very quickly. And there are three companies that can make $50 from the get-go with their first run with that aforementioned 2T. And there are, I think, three miners as well that can only run for 30 with their first run of that 2T. And those ones are noticeably worse than the good ones.
0: That's exactly why I was talking about seating, to be honest. So we're going to do a bit of a hodgepodge thing here. So there's some very clear value centers on the board. Uh, Boston... And New York, and early game, there's a offboard with multiple terminus en- entrances to. I think it's CSV, that or was it CVS? CV, CV. There you go, the CV. North. There you go, CV. Connecticut Valley that can generate a lot of money for you early on, and you will be running these miners as uh, split dividend companies for quite a while. Now, there's two factors here. One, the amount of money they earn directly influences how much money they have to buy trains and number two it it directly dictates how much money you have to buy shares if you get landed with a pair of not very good ones now bear in mind you only got 10 out of the 15 that exist in the entire game in the opening draft so you could have three not very good ones it's totally possible that you could get two of them to yourself if you drafted terribly or you get one and somebody else gets two great ones inverted commas so picking your companies really matters because it's, it's going to be your launch vector, right? You're either going to be shooting off like a rocket or you're going to be going like a horse and cart a very slight
2: slope. Agreed. But I will say with the Snake Draft, usually if there's, let's say, two or three of the, the what we're going to call greater ones, the one that can run for 50, usually those are picked up one after another in that first go-around of the Snake Draft. It's more or less if you are the first player, it usually seems that you get a really wonderful miner, and you're probably going to get a pretty mediocre one as well, one of the lower last ones if you're the first person. It seems as if everyone selects them for the first go-around, and if you're first player, you can get one of the better ones and most likely one of the worst ones of the ten offered off the beginning game.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably reflective of an experienced play group. That would be more reflective of our experience in our later plays and our earlier plays. In earlier plays, because people were exploring the mechanic of merging, which uh, requires that your miners are connected by track, people were quite cautious as to the distance they picked their miners from each other. So they might pick uh, two middling paying ones because they were near each other, or a high paying one and a really low paying one because it's easy to connect them, rather than seeing what's available. Definitely as things have evolved, people have been making choices such as I can't let Jimmy have two massively paying ones. That would be deranged. And I'll take that other one and I'll make the connection work however I have to.
1: And and I think you also potentially have some interesting choices as well if you choose something that might end up on the same tile as well. There's upside and downside on that, which we'll come into as we we talk about the merger process later on. Yeah, as you say, first game we dismissed that and, and interesting choices abounded later on.
2: Yeah, and when I teach new players now, which I have taught this game a handful of time to newer players, I just straight up point up the the ones that I believe are the tiers that are available. And I say HRR, CV, some of the Boston companies, and the New York one are good for this reason, and here's kind of their drawbacks. But after playing a more recent game where a player went out of their way to completely make sure that two of my companies would never touch with track... It is something that you definitely have to be mindful of. Um, I don't think it's as easy as, okay, there's an if-then, if this one revenue center is available, take it and do that until the draft is over. I do think you do have to be mindful of the proximity of the two companies and do try to beeline them because I am functionally out of the game due to a player not allowing me to convert my two companies.
0: Oh, I certainly did that to another player, sadly my wife, on our first game where I stopped her merging her two companies through some hate rail. But, uh, and therefore how to experience two companies worth of rusting. It's possible, but I think beginner players may be more cautious than they need to be. So I think let's, we keep talking about merging and conversion and stuff.
1: I think, you know, obviously the, the key element of the par price is if you're merging your companies, there are two rules. They've got to be connected by track, and in turn, well, that, that is the only rule, sorry, apologies, when you merge them then, you, um, you add the par values together of the two companies you've taken. So if you've got one at 50 and one at 100, you're going to get 150 uh, as your new share price to your newly formed company. Uh, and then you'll replace the station markers, the single station markers of the two miners you've got, uh, leaving you with one other station marker and all the treasure and all the assets of both miners in your new, new shiny major company.
0: Yep, you heard it here first. Each major company only has three station markers. Now, I appreciate that doesn't mean a lot without the context of the board and the potential positions for station markers, but take it from us. Having a degree of flexibility where you place that station marker is quite useful. Obviously, every company can place the third one where they want. Situationally, you can place the second one where you want as well. They're key, and we'll come to why later in terms of the routing and the value centers on this. But unlike other games, you're not dripping in station markers to make routes, defend routes. You've got three. They all count.
2: Absolutely, which is why it's so important, again, looping back to miner selection, some of the higher-valued token spots or the miners that start making a lot more money. They're not the miners that actually exist in a good spot for an endgame run. Endgame runs in this game are absolutely crazy, and we'll circle back to it, but you're running for $1,000 if you shove two eight Ts together. Again, we'll talk about it later, but having the tokens in the right spot with either a conversion where you grow it up or merging two of them together is incredibly important in this game. With that, do you mind if I cover how converting actually happens versus merging here?
0: Go ahead, Jake. Please do.
2: Absolutely. So the other option for making your miners into larger companies is by converting them. So what this is, is you compare the aforementioned uh, miner price. Let's say I floated mine at $70, and you pay the difference to get two shares worth of that company up to $100 per share. And so in my case, would be $30 times two is $60. And then at that point in time, you have an opportunity to buy any number of shares, getting yourself up to that 60% ownership. And that also exists with the conver- with the, the, the merging as well. Why don't we talk about a change that has uh, recently happened that I've heard some complaints about on the playtest group online with the cross-purchasing of shares at a conversion or merging opportunity.
0: No need to be circumspect, Jake. I was one of the people who's complaining about this. So uh, yeah, <laughs> so in this game, when you merge or convert, as probably has just been covered, you can buy as many shares as you can afford as the president to stuff the coffers of your newly minted company. So if it's pars at 150 and you've got 450 on the hip, buy free shares. Now, in 1817 and other games that use a mechanic pretty similar to this, other players at the table in a clockwise fashion can follow by a share. Because Scott believes it leads to negative play experiences in a lot of circumstances, that rule has been tweaked so that only the president can buy shares. I don't want to go too hypercritical as to why I don't think it's necessarily a great idea, Jake. I like agency, and I'm an experienced player, and I think situationally it can be good to follow by the shares, but I'll fully accept Scott's position that for newer players, they can often be loading the bullets into somebody else's revolver to then shoot them in the face.
2: Yeah, and that's the one thing. It can kind of also form a cabal of what's the term for it dead share buying or dead dead shift buying where two players will kind of agree to pump money into each other's companies and sell down which we'll talk about later but if you're one of the people it turns into a game where you want to convert and try to capture some of the capital of the opponent players to try to get that capital into your company to do it and it becomes less of well i want to position this as it's best for my company and me at this point in time it's well what's going to happen if i Convert at this point in time with Craig and Dave's money. Will they pump that into my company? And I like the change. There's plenty of games that offer the cross-buying, especially 61 and 67. Both of those games have a convert and merge cross-buy of a share. So having this one be a little different is totally fine for me, and I understand why he removed it, and personally I endorse and, and prefer the change.
0: What do you think of the change, Dave?
1: I was going to say, well, I, I, I'm as someone who often only... Um, grows minor companies up uh, into a very limited presidency situation. Uh, I'm always welcome with other people trying to put cash in them. Um, But obviously it does increase the risk of me losing that company later in the game. So I, I liked it as it was originally. I didn't have a problem with it. But I can understand, you know, the construct behind trying to change it a little bit. I guess let's see what settles by the time it arrives in general availability. But I think either way is fine, really. I don't think it had a massive impact. It's just a good opportunity for people to pile in if they see a good value company and get get an early share and maybe get some revenue if you're merging at the start of your your pair of operating rounds.
0: I think that ship sailed, Dave, unfortunately. So as much as I'd like to have an option or a house variant or something like that, I think uh, I'm 99.9% certain that that's a lock decision. That said... I guess I should talk to the other reason why it's a bad decision in principle to buy another company's newly minted shares. This game has a feature where you can issue shares, and thereby, if you buy the shares, then you reduce the pressure on the opposing president to have to issue them and thereby permanently damage their own share price. I think that's the number one point, right, Jake? That's the thing that scott feels the newer player would be conceding if they did the natural behavior of i should pack my portfolio as soon as possible
2: right it's better to have that thing and i I think that's 100 percent the reason with that as well um a lot of these games have a big snowballing problem the 61 or i guess i haven't played 35 but the 35 branch and i think there's been efforts put into new england to stymie this snowballing behavior and we'll talk about those in a bit, especially with the IPO shares. But yeah, exactly as you said, if there's a if there's a mechanism in the game and everyone's using it besides one player, that one player will probably win.
1: And, and I, I was kind of going to jump in a little bit there, Jake, and I think that you, you kind of teased a little bit of a precursor, I think, to that is that in the concept of shares, I think it's a really important thing in this. that the, uh, And, and uh, shares have two states. Uh, in effect, there's, there's IPO shares, which are obviously bought out of the company as it's newly formed. And then, obviously, you have what we've been calling market shares. I don't know if anyone else has catchier names for it. But obviously, once they've been bought out and they're sold back and forth between players and all the companies, or the company that they, they belong to, then they work in some very different ways. Um, and I think that drives some of the decision making around around those investment opportunities, ultimately. So with, a, with an IPO share, I'm going to go on and explain this, guys, so do interrupt when you feel free. But um, with an IPO share uh you're paying the current market value as a player so if my shares are worth 150 in my company i pay 150 but the company will only see whatever that par value is and we talked a little bit about how that was set earlier but let's assume it's 100 for example i'm paying 150 to the bank and the company only gets 100 in treasury however that then turns that share into a market share later on in the game if that shares in the bank pool and the company could potentially buy it back if the company resells a market share, as I say, I've coined it, and, and your company is 175 by that point in time, then the company sees all of that 175 at that point. So, there's some interesting challenges I think around that capital generation cycle, and, and particularly trying to get those shares into differing states that are more beneficial to either player or to um, uh, or to company.
2: Absolutely, and I think we probably should explain what the IPO value and how it's determined. We mentioned it, but I think just to wrap it all up, it's. It's whatever the converted value of the company is. So if you're converting it, that means your IPO value will be $100 per share. If you are merging two together, it's the combined value and round down for the closest spot on the stock market.
1: Yeah, I, I was only going to kind of make one one other slight observation on that. And, and it was really around how that, that transaction works in both ways. So if for some reason you're paying less if your market value is less than the ipo price then again the bank will fund that differential so there are scenarios you might want to to put a company in where you can buy shares cheaply and get money out of the bank potentially
0: no yep absolutely i agree that's been something i've been experimenting with in my last few plays about making the shares cheaper for me of course you're writing off the initial money you invested well, value you invested into the par prices in the first place, but if that actually lets you own a greater proportion of your company sooner, putting you in a better position in the paper race, that's probably a sacrifice worth making. Has that been your
2: experience, Jake? Yeah, it's absolutely been my experience. So something you can do, there's two merger round opportunities following both sets of ORs, both ORs in the in the set. So if in after OR 1 in the set, you merge and convert your company and you're at a high value price, um, you could issue or withhold or if you're going to be trainless or some situation you can control the price of the company so that later you can pump more capital into your company by being able to afford it and uh you don't always have to put money in with the investment when you convert if it's in a trainless situation or if you know that you're going to go into a stock round might as well just sit on that money and lower that price so you can get more value out of your money that you have because four shares is better than uh than two for example and uh, having more ownership there and having the same amount of capital is absolutely a wonderful choice
0: yeah i just want to talk academically quickly about the way the presidencies are formed in this versus 67 so i would say a word that defines this game to me for a certain extent is direct a lot of these procedures are pretty direct involve limited steps and are quick to do so in 67 you can have cross player companies being minted where two different miners come together to make a major or, or three or four or five there's a formula for how you get the par value and there's a whole little process about how the company split up with this only one person is going to be the president and like i say and only the president themselves can top up the coffers if they so wish uh timing's allowing jake so yeah, all these processes are quite quick so although there's some complex concepts in here around flipping shares from market state to ipo bank subsidizing shares you buy actually the, the process you're doing that to enable these thought patterns they're like one paragraph processes they're not too painful
2: agreed however i will say i have heard some people complaining and at our local moguls con um, which we had here There were some players who were making a pretty good case to Scott that there should be two different players around the table, allowing them to merge their two companies together. So it'll be interesting to see if he finds that to be a good idea or not. But yeah, exactly your point. It rings true of there is not a lot of procedure to each step of the converting.
0: I mean, we'll come back to our thoughts on directness and the trade-off at the end, I guess. I don't want to foreshadow my own conclusions too much, but what I will say is it's not necessarily a costless decision making everything simple. So next step, let's talk more about the shares, because as you probably know, I consider 18xx games to be stocks and shares games where assessing the value of the board is done by means of trains and routes. So shares pay where they sit, as they do in all other incremental cap games. Well, say all that's a bit strong. Most other incremental cap games, they we talked about the market subsidy and how that piece has already been covered the thing companies can do and we implied this is they can issue shares Uh, if you issue shares you do that after the train purchasing step so there's a degree of planning required there you can't use it as a get yourself out of jail free if you get caught by the train rush the game mechanic not the podcast Uh, however you can also redeem shares that can be done at any time so you could redeem if you've got spare money you could redeem shares at the start of your turn to benefit from the dividend. However, never the twain shall meet. You can't issue and redeem on the same operating round. But there's some interesting implications to the issuing piece where if you were say at the back of the operating order, last to make decisions, and you saw everybody else's coffers were a bit skinny and they were taking a slow build approach, and you figured oh, I want to inflict some pain, maybe you issue a bucket of shares up to the 50% limit in the bank pool to say, hey, I'm going to have a ton of money next round, guys. What's that going to be spent on? I presume you've seen some predatory, that's probably a bit of a strong name, some nasty behaviors like that, Jake, in your expert group.
2: Yeah, I mean, calling them experts is correct because I've yet to win with this group. But yeah, we see that a lot where this game is really about capital management and everything along those lines. And with the issuing, it's the one thing that devalues the company aside from withholding. And it's kind of the only way that, companies get worse in this game um, aside from the aforementioned not running so it's very important to watch how that goes and where it's going to go
0: i think the other thing that devalues is president sales as well but yes it doesn't it doesn't feel like one of those games where it would ever really behoove you to significantly sell down no 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 agreed cool um so just moving on beyond shares should probably just make some basic statements about the game small companies can only lay or upgrade one tile per turn Large companies can lay two yellow tiles or upgrade one tile. We talked about the station markers and we talked about how you have those. So there's no point covering that again. After you've run your trains, this is a game where you jump either once or twice based on your performance, the index being the current value of your share. You can do full or half payments, which means that whatever you pay is compared to your current market value. And if you were doing superb, versus your stock value, you could double jump on a half payment. I mean, you're probably out of the game if you're in that situation anyway, to be quite honest. If your stock value is that low at that point in uh, proceedings, maybe I'm wrong. Shall we go on to trains, guys? Because, I mean, let's be honest, it's the only reason we're all here, right?
2: Yes, let's do it.
0: Dave, you okay with trains?
1: Absolutely. Always want to talk about the trains.
0: Go on. Bombs away, sir. You're known as the trains (laughs) guy. So, uh, go for it.
1: So you've got your standard standard fare of, of normal trains, your twos, threes, and fours. And again, they work in the same way as they do in, in most other common 18xxs. They'll run for two revenue stops, be that a big city or an off-board location or a town. And then, obviously, once you get to the permanent trains, you start at the five, they become express trains. They run uh, through cities and off-board locations. They do not count uh, little town stops, dits, So again, I think there's a kind of trains that we've seen in other games before. But the interesting point you have here is if you can buy two of those express trains into your company, and you should if you can, um, they will combine together to run effect as a single train but double the value of the route. However, the kicker there is they will only run with the smallest value. So if you've got a 5e and a 6e in your company, they'll still only run for five stops and double that value.
0: Yep, that's uh, that's it. They combine to become a 5D, if you are familiar with the nomenclature, or even a 5DE, I'm not sure what this would be. Yeah, that has implications on a few things, but one of the things I like about it, Dave, I think we discussed this before, so I'm almost certain you agree on this one, is that when you get that endgame fatigue, rather than having to do infinite count diesels and trying to noodle around the board with sheer brute force, it's pretty obvious what your best route's going to be. And more to point, it's pretty darn quick to count it.
1: Absolutely. And, and, and sorry, actually, let me just recount one of those things slightly. So so you can optionally choose to use a um, a town rather than, than a major city. And there is one specific location on the board that you may wish to include in your run, as it's worth more than other towns on the board. But, but yes, I think, you know, they, they come together interestingly. And again, they really drive some big value at the end of the game. Once those are in companies, how do we accelerate that bank break as quickly as we can, really, is the question everyone's asking.
0: Well, I've shared my thoughts on these type of trains before, specifically on the 1834 episode where there's a strange train that only goes to two major cities and doubles. And I like them in principle for newer players, and I think I like them generally for keeping play snappy. I dislike them in 1834 because the concept was taken so far as to the point of there's only like two or three valid places to run these trains, and they're always going to run that way that's pretty dull i think we can probably talk about whether that applies here in the conclusions and stuff i don't think they're at all without cost when it comes to strategic depth but maybe jake can inform me how i'm wrong
2: no i i I can understand that but with the map here in 18 new england which i know we're going to cover later it can get a little clogged and the tokens points make it so you can get cut off and i don't think it really hit a game where you could have two viable eight e runs so making sure that you have one Wonderful route, and making sure through all costs that you can make that route from every action that you're doing from the start of the game till the end and pivoting around other people's tokens is very important in the game.
1: The key, these key value centers, there's there's a if you can get two at least two of those in your end game run that you're doubling, then I think you're in a really strong position. If you could, could get all three, that's going to be a pretty strong company, and people are going to want shares in that one definitely.
0: Well, the design is internally consistent, right? In so much as. The terrain, the count of cities, the count of station tokens, is all quite limited. So although, as a general rule, There's a compromise made with um, doubling trains kind of making it so it's one route to rule them all. And uh, perhaps it's more interesting if there's a variety of things you can do with your endgame trains rather than it always being the same thing, inverted commas. Like in 18mex, it's always going to be Mexico uh, City, rather. Um, The whole game's in Mexico. Which, for the record, I love that game. I'm not criticising the game. I'm just saying it's a feature of doubler trains that they create a value centre of gravity. If you're not part of that city then you're not winning. At least with this, there's no secrets here, right? Once you've played it once, you realize this is the string New York to Boston to Hartford or New Haven. And if you're not doing that, you're out. And I don't think there's any secrets in that. If you are not packing two trains into your end game company come companies, you're out.
2: There's always the old adage in 18xx games where if you look down at your company and you're sitting on $1,200 at end game, everyone knows around the table that you mismanaged that company. And this game, that that adage absolutely rings true here, because really what you're trying to do is get the most value out of your company operating that you can, so you can make sure that you make the most money. And if you're sitting on $1,200 and you didn't use that in the right way towards the end of the game, then clearly you didn't play it right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is also an interesting challenge, you know, kind of going back to that efficiencies of, of bolting those trains together. You know, the worst case scenario is you've got a 5E and an 80 in your company. That means you've overpaid for a train that's, that's inefficient, but... I think the timing challenge of trying to get two 5Es in a company is, is a real stretch for most companies. But it's it's one of those interesting things you conscious set on as you're playing through, I think.
0: We saw five double five es more when we had people doing ostensibly silly things like buying other people's shares. Then, then they had the money to go, wham, I'll have the two 5Es, thank you very much, and I'll ride that value to the end of the game. Shall we put a fork in this? We're done.
2: Right. And I think that also can happen, the main way I see two smaller trains is two larger companies that the player has grown up will be able to get both of them it's i find it relatively rare to see one company strike twice at two permanents it's more two companies strike once and then they combine
0: well it's not even possible with a sixes right the second you buy the sixes the two train limit comes into effect and suddenly noodling those trains around in your companies becomes a significantly more taxing challenge
2: Agreed. Should we have a quick time to talk about the share round, which is probably the least interesting part of the game?
0: Yeah, go on. Shall we let the guests do this, Dave? I'm super unexcited about share round. <laughs> go for
2: it, Dave. <laughs> Happily. So the share round is uh, I've actually heard one of the, one of the players that I play with here locally say it's one of his favorite parts about the game because share rounds are so quick. The most interesting things that you can do in the share round is you can buy a share just like you can in every other one. You only buy one share. You can sell any number of shares, but no share value is devalued except for when the president sells their own shares. The other thing that you can do is start a minor. And if you're comparing this game to 61 and 67, where majors can be floated just in the stock round, that cannot happen here. The only way that majors can come into existence is by having a minor either grow up or shove two of them together.
0: Yeah, which makes some game states where it makes no sense to start the end game miners and they just sit there on the table. Or, well, certainly novice players may think that. I've certainly been staring at the table and it's taken a lot of coercing to go, oh, am I going to take the risk to start that company and yada, yada, yada. However, there's an interesting feature with these miners. There is as much or as little liability as you so wish. Because if you want, if a miner at the end of its OR doesn't have a train, you can just let it die
2: or you can just use it for away. a forced train buy you still are allowed to do a forced train buy
0: indeed yep you could either way it's a president's choice as to how much liability they want so that's an interesting thing i think you can start a company use it to take a train out of your company that's otherwise train locked okay that train may rust soon but you're willing to buy a hundred bucks to remove train lock aren't you craig yes i am and then move on with a bigger company in a better state of health
2: Yeah, and they also operate before, so you can put a situation where you can put a lot of capital into a company to maybe be able to strike two early permanents, which we have talked about earlier. The other thing I've seen happen is people will start them late game to shove two large companies together and have a really high IPO price when they have a lot of capital to be able to be able to pump a lot of money into that company to be able to buy the bigger trains. Another thing I've been able to see is a large float to take $200 of the, let's say you're in a situation where you have an 8e in a company and you want to get another one, but you're sitting on a 5 train and as Dave mentioned earlier, it's really inefficient. You can start a bigger miner and put that 5e into it. And hopefully use that two hundred dollars plus some leftover capital in the company to be able to buy an 8E into it. So I've seen that work as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think they're quite interesting. You know, they're not a, a classic eighteen XX briefcase. And, and just I'll clarify that for some of our listeners who maybe don't aren't familiar with that term. But it's it's usually a company that you start that you've got absolutely no intention of running. You intend to just use the money to buy a train and give it to another company. So I think in this instance the miner. Doesn't function in completely the same way, but as Craig said, you've got very little liability ultimately, but it can be used to help just move things around, you know, make bigger companies that are already in a great place, possibly even better. And I think, you know, that's a really interesting lever in this game, absolutely.
0: I think it removes an interesting tension, though, right? Because you talk about a briefcase and it's evoking a certain feeling in me, uh, Dave, of I'll start that company and I hope I don't get a route because if I get a route, that's the trigger to me having to own a train in that company and that's a lovely tension from my point of view it gives something spiteful for you guys to do with this yeah it, the, the, that tension's not there and you know it's does not all games have to be the same game right but it's a cost of the decision is it that feeling isn't generated you know there's the liability as we just keep saying over and over almost on repeat loop the liability is as big or as small as the president wants
2: Yeah, well, why don't we, we've alluded to it a lot, but I think something that we should definitely spend some time on here is the map. Should we move on to that, gentlemen?
0: We'll just talk to the value centers, I guess, because value centers and terrain, because best one in the world, if someone wants to see the map, then uh, I recommend you go to our good friend (laughs) BoardGameGeek.com, who are not in any way associated with the show, and they make sure I say that every time.
2: Absolutely. All right, so the, the big value centers in this game are... Tied with, as I mentioned before, with certain miners, with Boston going to 100 and Hartford and New Haven going for less. Um, The other big destination point being New York, which is the very furthest southwest portion of the the map here. Um, And usually what you're trying to do in some capacity is end it either New York or Boston routing through some of those larger spots. All of the cities in this game are only two station holes with the exception of new haven and it can be very tight to make sure that you get your right route to cut through those cities
0: yep that sounds about right another thing that i would say is quite noticeable is the terrain costs are very cheap versus the public corporations money the terrain costs are blatantly there to make things more challenging for the miners in terms of, do I want to build through that small mountain at 40 bucks, or would I like to afford a train? Once the big companies come out, the terrain costs are nominal. Agreed.
1: At worst. And, and I think the other thing that's worth noticing, just kind of going back around to the miners and, and the geography of the board, they're very dense, there's a lot of them packed in and around the Boston area, and obviously that's fully thematic with it being 18 New England. But I think as we were saying right at the top of the conversation here, some of them have got some really really good early routes and can run for very strong value and some maybe not so much. So I think you know it's understanding where you are and potentially what you can become later in the game is, a, is actually more of a tension and decision point at the start that might see that you might see at face value on the game in the first sort of playthrough. Yeah, I
0: think actually it's a good point when you talk about marking the positioning because that's obviously part of the texture of the map. There's a couple of miners that have off-board terminuses as their home stations. Now, keen listeners will remember a while ago we just said that there's only three station tokens per major company. Having one of those station tokens be an off-board terminus can be quite nasty. It's not so bad for the New York-based company because its terminus is based in a self-scaling 100 Uh, value at the end of the game type place and it's to one end of the board so it being a terminus isn't that awful by the fact it's not that close to any of the other major revenue centres without doing a bit of work. The one that's interesting is the one that's blatantly set up for early game value to run a fleet of two trains and things like that but it's kind of in the middle of the board so if you terminate there you've probably got a rubbishy route. So you're kind of either sacrificing a station token, well, you are sacrificing a station token essentially because anybody could run to there, right? But you need to be more mindful about how you create the rest of your route. How are you going to make a two station token on the board company work?
2: Agreed. And the other thing I will mention about the map as well is tokens and the cities are very tight. but. I actually have found that because everyone has so many companies with both the minors and the majors, you can kind of get around everything. This is a very optimized-until-the-bitter-end-of-your-route kind of game, because yes, if someone blocks you off, you're two or three upgrades away from getting around it, but usually getting around it is worth it in the game.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where, it's. I'm not going to say it's opaque, it's subtle. I guess a good word someone else used, one of our listeners used, it's a subtle game. Because sometimes laying a bit of track that stops somebody rooting into a big revenue centre for a few tile lays, that can be the difference between victory and loss, be it via via denial of a double jump, or them not getting the big revenue out of their D train, for want of a better term, for a few ORs. It very much feels like an efficiency race. Uh, I don't mean that as a pejorative, that's a style of game. It's not necessarily my style of game, as as, uh, people who know me intimately will tell you. But that feels like the vibe here. It doesn't feel like I tear your stock down or I force you into destitution by leaving you with no train. Those sort of things feel like fringe scenarios where they're even mechanically possible. Does that ring true with your experiences, guys?
1: Sure, yeah. No, I was going to say, yeah, agreed. I think it's... um... One of those things, isn't it, that you should say. It reminds me again. I've referenced it a couple of times. I think 1846. You can always root round a problem in that in a few turns. And if you can do that, generally you run for value. It may not be as much value as you're hoping to run those nice big trains for. But yeah, I think I think. It, and even though there are some financial levers to pull in the game, I think it generally tends to edge towards the run good companies and hold good stock type side of the game. Jake, would you agree?
2: My, my feelings on this have waffled a handful of times. My first kind of plays, it really did feel a lot like 1846, where you're just holding on for your best, trying to manage the trains and make sure all your companies have something. But in this online game that I've mentioned a handful of times, I've really seen the amount of hateful things that you can do early in the game that'll really stymie someone's growth. So, for example, I had two companies, one being in Providence, the other one being in Boston, and one player did everything they can with tokens and track lays to make sure that I couldn't merge those and ultimately ended up meaning that I'm out of the game. He is most likely going to win. It's in contention between three people. And so it does not offer you the levers that other 18xx games give you, but they're there, circling back to the point that Craig said, but they're subtle. They're not as blatant as other games and other copies.
0: I don't see those le- levers there if you all survive the opening. That, that That's possibly a bit harsh, but I've experienced that same thing you did, Jake, where you can take someone out of contention, uh, potentially to your own advantage and it's probably it's actually one of the interesting tensions where if i convert early then i have the freedom to place a nasty station token but i may be running for less of my company's net earnings because you know obviously i'm getting 50 percent by default when they're miners when i merge maybe i can only f- afford 40 percent of the company but i can place a nasty station token somewhere and that can be the difference between killing someone or not but if you survive that early phase, I don't see where the tools are in the toolbox to affect somebody else's vector. You know, they're kind of, someone's doing really well, they're earning money, they're earning money, oh, I'll buy one of their shares, that, that that helped them, oh, okay. I don't see where the interference is once we survive the opening act.
2: Yeah, I think the interaction is, is strategic versus tactical. There is nothing you can do in a situation where someone's very far ahead and has their route down. You might be able to lay some tokens later with some later converted companies and block them off, but as we've mentioned, you can get around mostly everything in this game. So, okay, they didn't pick up a 50 city, they picked up a 40 city. But that happened in the very beginning of the game with selection. You always have to be thinking about your route at the end of the game and how you can be able to accomplish that. It's not along the lines of, okay, I'm going to open up my eyes at this stock round and it looks like Dave's ahead. I'm going to buy a share and sell it just to be a dick to Dave. That does not exist in this game.
1: Although you you should always do that. That should be in, in most 1886 manuals, you know, buy Dave's Stock, sell it. But I think, you know, go, going back to that opacity point, I think, you know, uh, it's one of those things where, and, and it's true of most 18SXs, is that you know, the more experienced, the stronger players generally tend to win out and do better. I think in this, some of that doesn't become obvious uh, until you've played it a couple of times. So I think that is actually a plus point in my eyes. I think the fact that the game wants you to make, play it multiple times to see where the good things to do and how they all work are. Not that I think there's any dominant strategy around that at all in any way, but it just helps educate the players at the table and they, they get the benefit of repeated plays.
0: All right, guys, get the whiffle bats out because I'm about to say something I think you may vigorously disagree with, but please avoid the face, I need it for podcasting. So, yeah, I don't see that. I see what Jake's saying is about, for me, front-loading. Like he said, You know, you know, you pick the companies, you put your stall out and actually they'd already defined good routes early on in the opening draft for me most of the decisions in this once you've made them the execution decisions are pretty i don't say trivial that's not fair but they're unambiguous you know i've got these two companies over the next blah rounds i probably want to get my base revenue and then i want to be working like fury to connect my two companies that's doesn't seem to be a whole heap of decision making there the or ambiguity in the decision we're talking there. When you're talking when to convert and when to not, I think I alluded to some interesting decision points there about when do I need to deploy that station token? Or can I afford to buy enough of this to make it worthwhile? I don't want to be worse off. But it's almost an internal decision. It's like, okay, I think I can see a little bit of tension there, but it's not multidimensional inputs coming at me from all angles like 1817 or even, dare I say, 1830 and then the end games is i have to pack two trains into this company and my route must encompass two of three boston new york and one the middle ones and if it can encompass three of three then i'm in a position to win it you know or at least a candidate for winning it i appreciate to be fair dave right and jake i've played this circa 10 times overall and it took me a while to come to the point where i've got the heuristics and the optimizations to look at it that way. But what I want to be entirely clear about is I don't dislike it. I really enjoy playing it. It's not a case of, I you know, I enjoy the opening bit, although the opening bit feels perhaps a bit, I don't want to say scripted, but rote, where if you've got a certain company, you know what you're going to be doing with it by and large. A bit like the Southern Company in 18 Islands. Yeah, I, I, it's weird. I'm, so I'm struggling to articulate this because there's a disjoint between how my analytical brain feels about it and how many plays I think I have left of it. Versus how much I'm enjoying it right now. Maybe you can help me unpick it.
2: So, Dave, I'll go high, you go low with the wiffle bat, or how do, how do we split yeah, yeah. it? Yeah, I
1: think, I think we just pile in and give them a good kicking All at right. this
2: point. So I, I do have a less plays than you do, Craig. I'm, I'm sitting at 7 or 8, depending on if you count a halfway-played online game that's functionally determined at this point in time. And I guess it is a question, but I think that this game has a lot of plays in it due to a handful of reasons, one of them being the random setup of miners. And I think what this question asks of the players is just entirely capital management throughout everything. You have to manage what trains are where when. You have to manage what trains are going into your opponent's companies and when and why. Are they putting that there to pull it out to go somewhere else? What are they doing with everything? Then also add in the very interesting timing of floating's tertiary and quaternary different miners. I've seen one player even with five miners at one point in time. Seeing all those questions be asked of you, I think, is what I like about the game. I don't agree that... It has a limited amount of plays, but if you're someone who's going to really enjoy the hard attack of buying someone's share just to dink it down a handful of values or placing a token just to ruin someone's route, that is exists in this game, but it's not as blatant and as, well, I'll do that this point in time. You have to really plan it the entire get-go.
1: Yeah, and, and I'll jump off the back of that and say, you know, I, I think uh, you're absolutely right, Craig, in the point you make about a lot of the decisions you make at the start drive how the end game goes but I do think there's, there's plenty of stuff to go along the way and as I say you know you peel back the onion each time you play it and you get some different experiences. I'm, again I'm at seven or eight plays you, you managed to have a couple of plays without me um, so uh, you know it's it's there but I, I think there's there's plenty to go through uh, as you get to that point.
0: Yeah. I'll admit it's a journey of thought thing right I fully admit that I'm not married to my position that it hasn't got tons of plays in it because I'll keep playing it whilst I still enjoy it. My fear is, is that once you know how to execute and you know the right patterns for issuing and redeeming, and once you've run all the table positions, maybe there's not enough Excite left in it for me. And I'll fully disclose, right, I normally abhor this style of 18xx. may maybe a bit strong. I actually like all 18xx, but this isn't higher at my preference scale, right? So the fact that I am actually really enjoying this one is a testament to the fact that I think it's a really good example of what it is. And that's not to say I think it's uh, polluting itself and providing exciting things for me to do that are to my taste. No, this is not pandering to me in any way, shape, or form, yet some of the directness of it it just flows really well and that sound that sounds really like vaporous but it all once you've got the share flipping thing internalized which is probably the most technically complex thing you're going to have to teach in terms of people going oh i don't get it it just goes really smoothly and you can you can whip out pretty quick all right it's not in our experience it's not a four hour game i could see how a quicker group it could be but it's eminently a five hour game
1: and I've got time for those in my life. Well,
2: that's interesting, because with my group, I've actually never played a game that's been longer than three and a half hours.
1: So I think there's also one other point I kind of want to loop back around on as such, and, and we, we kind of touched on it, is around the opacity in the game a little bit. I think, you know, uh, and there's uh, the fact that there are only eight major companies in the game, and you have a decision point. Am I going to grow two minors into one major, or am I going to go convert on a one-to-one basis? And maybe you're converting, you know, and, and that brings with it some capital challenges, potentially, but you're converting to restrict the ability of other players to, to merge and such. And I think that is an interesting challenge. And again, that's something that I think is variable to every play. How How is the table state going to be? You've got to make a lot of decisions as you go through on that one. don't know, Jake, have you had any thoughts around that?
2: Yeah, to answer your question, Dave, I, I think it does, but I also think it asks a question of how many can you really handle? How many things can you bite off before you can actually chew and get them all down? I haven't seen a point where... They have, we've always ran out of the majors, but I've never seen a point where somebody would have really been interested in merging two different companies together towards end game and wasn't able to. I did find when we were first playing this game, we carried a lot of pretext in with 1861 67, and we did a lot of conversions versus um, merging. And we found that that did limit that eight more. So if there's a game where a lot of people are insistent upon converting versus merging, maybe that will happen. But I definitely think it's, plays to the fact of how much can you actually handle when you chew off this many mouths to feed.
0: Yep, makes sense. I'll say now, it's been a theoretical consideration in our games. By and large, we've never really seen anybody left carrying the baby of a single company. I could see it being a situation where you've got a lot of value in that company. It's a four train, it's got money, and oh no, there's no company for it to go into. Uh, it needed a bit more capital to get a permanent train. Now you're stuffed. So I could see it theoretically, but it never played out in any of our games like that. Okay, so let's shall we do conclusions? I think we've given a bit of a flavour, repetition allowed, because if there's any point that you didn't feel was sufficiently amplified by the podcast or by, you know, your contribution towards it, I think now's the time to say it. I'll give it my, I won't say rating, but I'll, I'll say a little bit. My basic view on this is it's an enjoyable, constructive 18xx game that takes some of the things from 1861 But, I mean, where do you want to start? You know, I mean, at the end of the day, the whole minor companies thing started in 1835, and I think we can forgive everybody else who built off the top of that, by the by. Take some of the ideas in 1861, it seems like a little bit of an influence of the random packet thing from 18 Ireland, for want of a better term, and build what seems quite a consistent and logical package. It's not my style of game. I'll be honest, when we're ripping through the early operating rounds... Running for the same value over and over again, laying track towards you know towards um, home stations that we picked during the opening piece. It doesn't feel like I have a whole heap of agency there, and I try and sprint through those opening operating rounds as quick as possible because it doesn't feel like there's a whole heap of meaningful decisions on the table there, bar when you pack an extra train into a company via force transfer, and when am I going to pull the trigger, let loose the dogs of war, otherwise known as my third token. (laughs) That said, as long as we get through that opening section at a reasonable clip, I don't mind it too much. When we get into the main game, the quality decision, the mid game, the quality of decision seems to increase. And I'll take Jake's point that if someone's doing well in the mid game from good token positioning, that was decided during the opening draft. I'm not sure how I feel about that right now with that little kind of revelation or uh, mind nugget that's been put in. I'll, I'll ruminate on that over the next few weeks, I'm sure. And when it comes to the end game, I'm going to talk about those trains, guys. So I appreciate the doubler trains for what they do in accelerating route calculation at the end of the game it does mean there's only one route in town meaningfully or maybe two if you've got a bigger train and you can go around the houses that's a shame some games have i've really enjoyed the potential of. i think it was 18 new york had doubler trains were really interesting games but the end game devolved down to there's only one show in town guys and if you're not part of this show you're out of the game and that can be quite dissatisfying if you don't have a station token in the right place to be part of the big show That all said, that's me giving my very, very worst lens on it. I've, despite those kind of academic, hmm, 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 points, I've really enjoyed playing it. I'd play it another handful of times, no problem. I do wonder if I'm going to go further than those handful of times, but let's try and use this value lens, right? I've played it 10 times or approaching that. If I played it another six times, well, for the price, it doesn't owe me anything. How many euros can I play that I'd play 20 times and still have enjoyed them up until the last play. I genuinely can't think of many outside of like evergreen classics like Agricola. Yeah, I'll be the negative guy. So hate mail to com. Guys, obviously feel free to respond to my point if you feel I'm being a Bruce the Unfair and you've already responded to it. Maybe your closing thoughts are different on it. Maybe you have much passion for this and it is your new boo and you know you're wed to it.
2: So this is definitely for me, Become one of the top tier 18xx for me. Much unlike Craig, this is almost a tailor made game for me. I don't usually like waterfalls, I don't like paying attention to them, I don't like the gamesmanship and brinksmanship in them, so I usually am just trying to get done with that so I can move on to the part of the game that I enjoy. I will start with what I find the weakest in this game, which I think is what Craig hit at the opening draft. Um, I think it had some poise, and when I first read it, I thought it would have this fun, almost interesting take on how the companies are going to be, but it's functionally, you're choosing your company, and you are choosing a par spot where some of them are slightly better than others, but it takes a few plays to understand it, but it's, it's, it's nothing crazy. I, I actually wish there was a little bit more fluctuation between all the par spots that are available. But then moving to the things I really like, I really enjoy the distribution of the different miners in each game, Um, the fact that some of them can be open in green with different par spots and which 10 are going to be out from the beginning is really fun for me to assess the board state and figure out how it's going to be. I enjoy the track laying in this game, I enjoy the routing because there are two paths that can get really valuable, either heading up north through the kind of CV area and down into New York can be very wealthy, or going through the center token populated part of the board that I really like. The other thing I really like about this game, and it's probably the main thing I enjoy about it, is just the managing of capital. There's a trade-off in improving your runs now versus maybe holding on and trying to cut off Dave's run that he's absolutely destroying us with. And the other thing that's really fun with the capital management is the issuance and making sure that you're operating in the right turn order. Because if you're operating very first and you're six or eight spots ahead of everybody else... Maybe you should have issued because you have no visibility towards what other people are doing, and you really need to be able to put it two different trains in. Ultimately, I consider it a top tier 18XX game, and it's definitely going to join the other ones that I find of its ilk. What do you think, Dave?
1: We all agreed that opening draft is a, a very deterministic thing. I think that's partly because sort of 75% of those miners come out. I don't know if that's something that may be looked at. I, I like it. I like the puzzle, but as you say, it really sets sets things up very well. And as you say, you're already thinking endgame state. But, you know, yeah, it, it, like you, it's Jake, it sits in my wheelhouse. It's things I like about 18xx. I think all of those capital levers that you were talking about, you know, how, how am I getting money in and out of my company? What, where am I in that mix of turn order and stuff? They're all really interesting. And I think, you know, from from my point of view, and, and I think I'm slightly less plays than Craig in, you know, I think I'm still playing very suboptimally. Um, and I really want to explore it more to see, you know, to see how better I can get with some of those things there's definitely plenty of game plenty of mileage and plenty of interesting things there really i'm going to throw out one question to both you at the end it's the question i think we always ask on just about uh, every recording we do what do we think about as a game for teaching new players brand
0: new green players i wouldn't use it for teaching because i think there's too much room for confusion with those flipping shares and the direction of subsidies be they player to the bank subsidies or bank to the company subsidies I think if it wasn't for those shares, I would say it's ideal in the sense that it's constructive. There's very little player-player interference that you don't understand from being able to see what a token does and seeing people buy the train you want. Having taught it at Stationed Out, having seen it play out at Stationed Out with reasonably experienced players, all of whom were bemoaning the flipping shares on their first play. And I'm using flipping as in to turn over as opposed to flipping the not crude curse word that a Brit might use instead of the other F word. So uh, I've seen experienced players bemoan that. So I would hate to stick that in front of someone who is completely green to the genre. That said, maybe we try it with someone and see if it works, Dave. I'm not completely postile to it. I just think actually... Also, there's the whole teacher passion thing, right? I am not passionate about the levers this game has, so I probably wouldn't use it for teaching. I'd use something that's more in my wheelhouse with the violence of an up down left right stock market. But you know, that's again preference thing, right? I think I think you could use it as a teaching game, but be aware you are going to be answering a lot of questions about those flipping shares.
1: See so you normally call them those flipping shares in games anyway, but <laughs> yes, as you say you're using more of a British colloquialism there. Um I think I think, you know, it's an interesting point. I think My counter to that would be, you know, there are plenty of other of those games that are recommended as teaching, um, like 1846, where they do teach some things that aren't prevalent in others, but I do understand that uh, that share-state thing, it's a a really important part of the game, and it's, yeah, it can be very difficult to wrap your head around when you're learning a bunch of other stuff. Jake, I'll I'll let you respond.
2: Yeah, no, I, I have actually used 1861 and 67 to fully teach a brand new player to the genre, and that went actually swimmingly well. I've taught a lot of people. I actually learned 18xx at a convention and then brought a couple of copies home to teach with people. And so I have a lot of experience teaching newbies. And I I think this one would be okay, but I I haven't considered how hard it would be to explain the IPO shares. I think that this might be a little too in the weeds, but if there was a better way to explain IPO values besides just a marker on the board that's smaller than all the other ones, uh, maybe with an IPO chart somewhere or something along those lines, just where the players know that that's never moving, and for the value of each, maybe it'd be okay, but you're probably right on it being hard. I do enjoy that I won't have to explain a waterfall action in this game, because it seems like every single time I teach 89 or Chesapeake, then I say, okay, so that's how you play 18xx. Now do you want to learn how a weird waterfall auction works? And it all ultimately falls on deaf ears. So not having to do that is actually a bonus for, for me for teaching this game.
0: Yeah, that comes under the directness bucket I think we spoke to earlier. Yeah, But it doesn't have any of the indirect stuff like um, waterfall auctions. I agree with your point about there being a trade-off, right? The procedural stuff is less than 1861, 1867. Like we mentioned earlier, you know, it's actually easier to merge. It's easier to convert. There's no consideration of what other players are going to do there bar blocking your connection. And maybe I'm overboiling the flipping shares thing. It's just that experience is quite visceral and raw right now of a table of experienced 18XX players going, "Oh, these shares, this I can't track it." And you can imagine situations where someone takes the full market money they've paid for a share, sticks it into their company, unbeknownst to other players, and certainly not maliciously. That's the game. And but yeah, no, no, but the the, 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 the full money. No, yeah, no, that's
2: that's the game. The game's ruined from that point on.
0: Yeah, totally. And. Yeah, I can see that being a thing that could ruin a teaching experience that maybe, yeah, is like I say, you could avoid by picking a different title. That said, I think it's a great next step game. Once you've got the other concepts locked down and you're like, you know what, you can know how to play 1830. We don't need to worry about the waterfall auction. You already know how to lay track and stuff. Let's just talk about shares for a minute. And you keep the game a bit slower during the issuance of money the first few times, you know, when you're when you're buying shares and when the money gets steered around the right places. With a bit of discipline, I could see it being a great next-step title, but for me, I don't think it's a teaching game. Buy Chesapeake for that.
1: Yep, yeah, no, agreed, agreed. I think uh, Chesapeake is definitely stronger in that space. I certainly think it's, it's an interesting one to put in people's early radar, but there are some challenges there to learn that, absolutely.
0: Cool. Well, I think we've given a fairly rounded view on this, um, well, like I say, I appreciate Jake coming in and giving us a perspective from the pro seats with uh, Scott Peterson and Chums.
2: Well, I'm, 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 I'm a witness of the proceeds I, seats. I've yet to actually uh, beat Scott at this game and I don't know if I ever will. So he <laughs> it's hard to beat the designer at their own game. But yeah, I'm so thankful that you guys had me on and I, I hope that you guys uh, keep making more train game content for everybody because you definitely have a fan in Mark and I.
1: Thanks for joining us, Jay. I appreciate those kind comments. Looking forward to hearing from you guys soon as well.
2: Wonderful. Cool.
0: So, us having done the politeness thing to each other, let's uh, do the politeness thing to the audience. I want to thank all our listeners for listening to the show, and thank you for Patreons for continuing to support the show's editing process to make this thing possible, despite my obligations to make a vaguely passable, polite human being over the coming years. So, on that note... Thank you for joining us. Cheerio. Bye. See you guys. Thanks. You've been listening to The Train Rush. If you'd like to talk to the people behind the show, you can reach us on Twitter, at The Train Rush. You can engage with us via pictures using Instagram, the underscore train underscore rush. You can contact us on Facebook, search for The Train Rush. Alternatively, you can email us, craig at thetrainrush.com or dave at thetrainrush.com. If you prefer your engagement as more of an open forum, why not come to our Board Game Geek Guild, number 3342. Finally, if you'd like to contribute towards the show's running costs, then feel free to look at our Patreon, which is at patreon.com forward slash the Thank you for listening.